All right. Well, I am excited uh, to be with you guys. This is a great passion of mine to study God's Word with the church, with His bride. And so we are going to be continuing uh, the series that we've been going through together as a church. We are in um, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. Now, I understand that uh, the next uh, in the sermon series will we'll include some of uh, 21 and 23. Now, this is kind of a little bit of a complicated text. It, it kind of hinges and it kind of plays into both sides. So we're going to use it here this weekend and you're going to hear it again. Um, but it's such an important three verses for us. So I'm very excited about that uh, with you. Uh, today's sermon is titled Invitation or Immunization. Now, before you pick up your stones to throw at me, this has nothing to do with COVID. All right. Invitation and Immunization. Uh, what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's kind of telling, you, you've, you've heard Pastor Doug say this several times about uh, true disciples. Um, Jesus is making a distinction between those who are in the kingdom and those who are not. And so he's talking about true disciples, and now we kind of have this like point of crossroads. Like, are you going to do this or are you not? And so you have the invitation side of things. But then you have what we're going to talk about in a little bit about how we can immunize ourselves to the true gospel. So the main idea of the text this morning is be watchful and don't misunderstand the gospel. Christ alone saves, but he gives us the choice to follow him down the narrow and difficult path or continue following our sinful desires down the broad path, which leads to destruction. We're going to be talking a lot uh, this morning about um, what does it mean uh, and a lot of us to be saved. Uh, why and how do we go down this narrow and difficult path? And so some of the principles that we're talking about, um, I did get pastor permission to recommend a resource. Um, I am under their authority up here on this pulpit, but this book right here called Conversion, it's 128 pages. Uh, it just goes through what the Bible says about conversion. Uh, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean? And so a lot of this content comes from Matthew 7 and John 3, which we're going to be talking about. So I just wanted to put this before you. If you've thought about this, I think our church really needs this. It puts biblical principles, biblical passages to what we believe being saved, having a regenerate relationship with the Lord actually means. So just wanted to put that before you uh, before we get started here. Um, invitation. So this is the appeal to which Jesus has been moving through the whole sermon. He gives the call to decide now about becoming a citizen of God's kingdom and inheriting eternal life or remaining citizens of the fallen world and receiving destruction. Now, will we take Jesus at his word or not? It's an invitation to say, are you the one in charge or am I the one in charge? And my definitions of what truth is. Christ has finished giving these new kingdom principles, and now his sermon is coming to an end. Some of you are like, man, this sermon series has been going on a while. Well, now it's drawing to, an, to a close, and Jesus is saying, today's the day to make a decision. Are you going to believe in what I'm saying, or are you not? Now, immunization. What is immunization? Now, there is some conflict here, but I am just going to stick to the basics, so I'm just going to read the definition of what immunization is, okay, so we can understand uh, what is going on and how religion can become an immunization for us for actually knowing what the gospel is. So, immunization. It's when someone injects you with just a little bit of the disease, usually a dead, impotent version of the disease, so that your body develops antibodies. 
so that if you are ever exposed to the real thing, you are resistant to it. That's what happens with these people. They never get infected with the real gospel because they have been, in this case, the virus is a good thing, all right? Uh, The gospel is the virus, so just hold me there. Uh, Because they have been immunized by superficial religion, these people often can't believe in Jesus because they don't see the need to come to Jesus. And so there's four questions that I want us to start off with before we go into God's Word. Do we know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you a little tool to help kind of think through like what the gospel really is. But do you know it? Do you understand what Christ is inviting you to? That's question number two. Question number three, are we asking listeners, the people we're sharing the gospel with, to respond in the same way Christ asks us to respond? Or are we cheapening it? So are we asking people to respond the right way? Question number four, are we making people more numb to the gospel than than what they were before we even got there? All right, so we got some big, heavy things. Now, some of you are like, man, this is about to get meaty. And it is. And one pastor, when he talks about this passage, he says, actually, if you leave after a sermon on this text and you're not stirred, you're not a little frustrated, you're not trying to figure things out, he's like, the preacher probably preached incorrectly. This is meant to challenge us, to think through, to pray through, are we on the narrow, difficult path or not? And it has eternal implications. That's what's so, that's just what blows my mind here. We are invited now to make a decision, and this decision is not small. It has eternal implications. So, don't be immune to the gospel. And to help us with that, we are, as a body, going to dive in and learn from Jesus what the gospel really is. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are so grateful that you have seen it fit to invite us into your kingdom. I do pray that you'd help us to be good stewards of your word, that you'd help me, Lord, to speak clearly, uh, Lord, to speak with your love for people. Uh, I do ask that you would help us, Lord, to, to learn. I pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would clean us, purge us, Lord, that you would cleanse us from our sins so that we could sit here, soak in your word. Help us to be doers of it, Lord. Help us to be speakers of it. Father, we pray that your spirit would enable us, enable me this morning, that this would be a time of worship, not a time of just listening to religious talk, but a time of worship of how awesome, mighty, but loving you are. We pray these things, you and we pray, amen. All right, so what I'm going to do is we're going to go into sections, all right? So um, I've broken this piece this, and pieced this up um, into four major sections, verses 13 through 14, uh, is the reality of the two gates. So if you'd like to take notes, you like to try to follow along with what we're doing, um, right there, the first section, 13 through 14, reality of the two gates. Section two will be verse 15, and that's the warning of false teachers. Section three will be verses 16 through 20, and that's the recognition of false teachers. And then lastly, section four, verse 21 through 23, the importance of regenerate faith. And then we'll do a little application at the end just for funsies, all right? All right, let me read God's Word. We're gonna read, I'm going to read the whole thing together, and then I'm going to go back and we're going to take it chunk by chunk. All right? Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there is few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the thorn bush, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is God's word. So the first section here, verse 13 and 14, we see this invitation, the beginning of what Christ wants for us is to enter into the narrow gate. Now, what's interesting, I want to take a couple words that I want us to kind of pick apart here in this first, these first few verses. Number one is enter. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to get a little, uh, I'm going to a little creative here, a little intense with you. That is the aorist imperative. Enter. It's a command. We are at demand specific action. So it's interesting, this invitation already right off the bat, it's not just some simple, hey, you want to come to my birthday party, if you're free. Or, hey, some friends of ours, we're going to go to the restaurant, we're to this restaurant Wednesday night. If you're free, would you come? No, no, no. That's not the type of invitation we have. The invitation is, come, enter now. It's, it requires action. It is not a passive invitation to something for, like we were talking about, something just fun. We don't pass go. We don't pass $200. You don't go bury your family member. You don't go settle things at home before you go. You come now. And you enter. You do something. It's not a, you know, like m- most people will do, is they, they, they kind of admire the principles of the gospel, or they like aspects of it, but they don't actually enter. They look at the gateway and they say, oh man, that's a nice frame job. Man, I really like this aspect of what you believe in Jesus. Oh, I love that Jesus is a good teacher. Man, he did so, so many miracles. That's so cool. No, we are not called to just admire, admire Christ. We don't admire the gate. We go through it. So it's, it's an invitation, but it's also a calling. But it also implies, which is very interesting, we only see enter in the narrow gate. Jesus doesn't say your options are to enter here, enter here. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says your option is to enter here or continue what you're already doing. Now we're going to talk a little bit about this. The nature you are born into this world. King David talks about this. I was born, I was uh, in my mother's womb. I was already a sinner. You are already going down that path. There is no neutrality. You are already going down a path, and Jesus is saying, leave it and enter. The second word I think is really interesting in these first two verses is destruction. Now, a popular preacher says, you cannot know the beauty that is Christ. We'll talk about this a little bit. The beauty that is Christ until you know how terrible your sin is. Like you do not know you need a Savior until you know 
what is sin and why are you apart from him and why, is Jesus, why did Jesus have to die? So destruction, that's the destination of the one on the broad path, the people on the broad path. It does not refer to extinction or annihilation, as some scholars would say, but to total ruin and loss. It is not the complete loss of being, but the complete loss of well-being. So the idea behind here is this uh, eternal damnation that is offered, that is the, the ultimate destination of the broad path, it's you're continuing to live and experience constant torment. No more well-being. We have a lot of common grace. We don't have time to get into all of that common grace that's going on in the world, but we have a lot of common grace in our life. We have freedom in this country. We have food. We have these things. We have rain. We have seasons. We have all these things. The world is spinning, and uh, I'm not doing anything about it. Like we are in rotation. We are the right de- uh, distance from the sun. All these things that God is, he's prolonging judgment so that more can hear. I don't, I'm not a part of that. But there will come a day when there will be no more common grace. And your ultimate destination is this destruction. So let's talk about the gate. What is Jesus saying? You know, you, I, I said, I like the frame job. But what is the framing? I think what's really important for us, and this is where religion gets it wrong. It's not a what is the gate. It's not a where is the land. It's not a how beautiful is the church. It's a who. John makes this very clear. This is a theme for John, the book of John. Um, The who is Jesus. John 10.9 says, I am the door. If you want it really specific, Jesus literally says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 8.24, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is that gate. You do not enter. You cannot. There are not multiple paths that ultimately lead to God's satisfaction. There is one, and that's Christ. And if we as a church, if you as you're growing in your faith, if you who don't believe in Christ do not know this Christ, we're going to see the consequence of that. We have one access to salvation. And so then the next question naturally is, great, Jesus is the doorway. How do I enter? Well, I think they kind of help us out. The Bible helps us out with that. Number one, you need the Holy Spirit. Now, I know this text doesn't clearly talk about the Holy Spirit, but if you read the Bible, which I hope you do, you will see the great need for the Holy Spirit. Here's why. A dead person cannot help a dead person. I think this would be really interesting if somebody had a company. You know, you have all these uh, CPR certification courses. I think it would be really intriguing if someone said, I can help you do CPR on yourself. No, they always do CPR like they teach someone to do CPR on you if you die. Because you need help. A dead person cannot make themselves undead. This is how bad your sin is. You are spiritually dead. And you must have the Holy Spirit help you. 
Now, we don't have all the time in the world to study all that the Holy Spirit is doing, but know this. You do not stumble across this gate without divine grace, without the Holy Spirit calling on you. So if you are in this room and you're not a believer, the Holy Spirit has you here. The Holy Spirit has you here. If you're at all curious about the gospel, the Holy Spirit has already started working in you. That is awesome. Number two, how do we get to Jesus? How do we get through Jesus? Number two, you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, Jesus likes to talk about this. Uh, John 3, I don't know if you guys remember Nicodemus. He is a Pharisee and a ruler among Jews. This guy is top dog. All right, he is awesome. He knows that Jesus is a teacher from God. He believed in the signs that Jesus performed. He fulfilled all the religious requirements, but he did not know Jesus himself. And as a result, Jesus says he did not have salvation. And he doesn't have salvation because he's not reborn. What you do does not save you. You must have a new life. And you must have a new life because of how bad sin is. You don't, we, it's so hard for us to understand how bad sin is. It's corrupted us to the point of the spiritual death. This is why Jesus says in Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, depending on your translation, says truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And what's interesting is this is not something that Christ just invented on the spot. He's quoting, most likely, scholars believe, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I love Ezekiel. If you haven't read Ezekiel in a long time, go back and read it. It is awesome. This Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give, your heart, and give you a heart of flesh, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's pretty awesome. And Christ now is tying himself, he is tying salvation to something God promised years and years and years and years before. But you cannot know, and this is it, this is very important, you cannot know how awesome Christ is until you know the scandal that is your sin. And this is the scandal. That you said before all the universe, all of us, we all do this. We say, I want the glory. It is my desires that's important. My design that's important. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden when they looked at the, the great sin, when they look at this fruit and they say, and to them, it looked good to eat. Where God said it is not good, they said, by my eyes, it looks good. And they have changed the course of our human history. And before we say, man, shame on Adam and Eve, who's to say you wouldn't have been the one? The judgment for that is huge. I love J.D. Greer when he's talking about the sin. He says, sin is the eye problem. I want to be in charge. I want to serve myself and have other people serve me as well. I want all the glory. I want to be the primary point of my and everyone else's life. I want the glory. He continues, we are born in a state of rebellion against God. I want to be in charge of my life. I want the glory and the attention, my agenda, my interests, and are more, are more important than, what, than God's. And it kind of reminds me, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Hook. 
you know, the scene where Hook actually looks at the kids, he goes, I want, I want me, 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 now, now, now. Ugh. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. It's one of the most brilliant moments in film. But he's talking to kids who are always wanting, I want a cookie, I want a movie, I want a... And it's just an incredible view into our hearts. We want now, we say it with kids, it's very easy. They want, they want, they don't want to share. With adults, we're, with adults, we're just better at it. We're just better at getting things that we want, the independence that we need, or the independence we desire. This is, this is our heart. This is the nature of our being. But the, here's the thing. There is only one person worthy of that kind of honor and glory. And he created the universe. And what's crazy is, we say, no, not giving it to you. Our sins, because we have done such this, this such a big crime, warrant a big judgment, a curse and a judgment that are coming. Great wrath is upon us, John 3.36 says. I like what Louis Giglio says. He says, sin didn't knock us down to God's JV team or put us on probation or put you on a slower track to get our mansion in heaven. Sin wiped you out. Wiped you out. You're born in this world doomed, a dead person, walking. You must be born again. How do we do that? Well, you repent of your sins and you confess that Christ is Lord. Sounds simple, but it is not easy. Because this is not just, hey, Christ, you're Lord. Even the demons do that. The demons flee at the sound of his name. It's Christ. My life is changed because of you. And I want you to be the head of my life, not myself. So we repent. This is not easy. Verse 14 shows us that. It's not easy. This is why the other gate is so broad, because it's easier. This, the Bible says we're by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2. Now, if some of you are probably like, man, dude, you're talking about a lot of this negative stuff. The gospel starts with a lot of negative things. Bummer, man. When they ask these big-time big scholars, how would you share the gospel? They said, I spend 75% of the time talking about their sin. And the next 25%, how awesome Christ is. And now they see how awesome Christ is because of how bad our sin is. And Ephesians 2 tells us that. We're by nature children of wrath. We are evil by nature. Sin is pervasive in our lives. This makes sin easy. It's easy because we love it. And it's a lot easier for us to do things we love than it is for us to do things other people love. I don't think I need to give examples of that. Many of you, especially married people, are already thinking about that. One preacher says, easy believism is not scriptural believism. The narrow gate means that those who enter do so stripped of all they possess, rather than adding Jesus to their accumulated treasures. The way that is broad is easy, attractive, inclusive, indulgent, permissive, and self-oriented way of the world. There are few rules, few restrictions, and few requirements. And this is what scholars are saying when they read this text. They're like, this is why the way is broad. Take whatever you want. Just grab some luggage. Put an RV. You know, get a trailer. Let's go. Let's get our dually trucks. Let's go to town, man. We can take whatever we want. You like looking at pictures online that you're not supposed to be looking at? Bring it on. You like having secret sins that you don't have to be accountable for? Bring it on. You have anger problems? Who cares? Complacency? Who cares? You can fix that. Laziness? Who cares? Just don't let people see it. 
Like, bring it. All you want, you can have. It's a broad road. And Christ is saying no. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote on this. He says, you and your sins must separate, or you and your God will never come together. No one sin may you keep. They must all be given up. They must be brought out like the Canaanite kings from the cave and be hanged up in the sun. We are called to throw out all our self-condition, self-confidence, sorry, self-achievement, self-righteousness, and self-satisfaction. We are called to be dependent on our Lord. This is difficult. But hear me clearly. This takes faith. It takes a special kind of faith that goes against our sinful natures. It is faith that works, loves, obeys, endures, perseveres. It doesn't do it perfectly, but it does it persistently. So hear me, I'm not asking you. I don't think this is, what, this is not what Jesus is saying, to be perfect. I think he's very clear in saying you can't be perfect. This is why you need the faith that Christ has taken your imperfection, laid it on himself, and has paid the price for you. And then he says, go live in freedom and newness of life. Salvation for us is not some ticket to heaven. It's not one and done prayer we make. It is a lifestyle change. It is a heart change. It is a change in nature. We are not called to repent once and call it a day, or eternity for that matter. We are called to repent daily, to make a lifestyle of like, Father, I've sinned against you today. Or you say to your brother or your sister, I've sinned today. I want to have a lifestyle of confession. And that type of lifestyle changes who you are. I love John Piper's quotes. You have to, if you're going to preach behind a pulpit, you have to quote John Piper so everybody knows you're going to heaven. So I'm going to quote John Piper here. He says, I don't know I'm alive because I have a birth certificate. I know that I'm alive because I'm breathing. This is the life we're called to. Not perfect human beings, but you are breathing and living the gospel for people. This gate, this narrow way is hard because many reasons, but one is because there are so few who take it. It doesn't mean it's not offered to everyone. We, we would say that the gospel, what Christ did on the cross, is efficient for some, but it's sufficient for all. Basically what that means, it's offered to everyone, but few take it. It's hard. You are alone, often, you feel. By worldly standards, this path is not cool. It's not hip, it's not dope, it doesn't slap, and it certainly isn't a vibe. We are different because God gives a new nature with new affections. Which leads us to what some would say is a change in tone from Jesus. When we read verse 15, a warning of false teachers, I don't want you to hear this is just some shift. He is telling you the way is hard and it only gets harder because there are people in the world who are purposefully and maliciously trying to misdirect you. They are in sheep's clothing. They want to look like a pastor. They want to look like someone who has your well-being uh, in their heart and in their mind, and yet... They don't. I think of it this way. Uh, Bethany actually helped me with this illustration. We were talking about uh, different ways. How do you illustrate how this works? These, these uh, false teachers. And uh, just imagine you're in a foreign land. 
You're in a foreign land, you're trying to get directions to somewhere, you don't know how to get there, and you ask somebody, and they tell you the wrong way. What? Like, how are you supposed to know they're going the wrong way? And then it made me think, I have done this to someone, and that was over 10 years ago, and I still feel guilty for it. I was, in a, I was working on a farm in Missouri in summer. I know, I look like a farm guy. Uh, I wasn't very good at it, that's why I did it for a summer. Um, and I'm standing here getting gas, and this, these two old, sweet old ladies come in from out of state, and they say, uh, Sonny boy, can you help us find this town, which is the town next door? And I said, well, ma'am, I don't, I'm not from here. I don't really know. And they're like, oh, are you sure you don't know? And I was like, well, pull out my GPS. I had my GPS, punched in what they wanted, and still told them the wrong directions. They went the comp- they didn't just they didn't just miss it by a little bit. Like I told them the complete opposite way. I still have this guilt in my heart. But think about it. There are people who don't accidentally do that. And there are some who accidentally give you the wrong, tell you the wrong way. But there are some who purposefully give you the wrong direction. You're kind of set up to fail in a lot of ways. So we're called to beware. We're warned against these people who are leaning us against, uh, away from the narrow path. Jesus calls us uh, to constant vigilance of this ongoing danger. I love this Arthur Pink uh, quote. He says, false prophets are to be found in the circles of the most orthodox. That means like the most religious places. Even if they're in the most religious places, these false prophets are there. He says, and they pretend to have a fervent love for souls, yet they fatally delude multitudes concerning the way of salvation. The pulpit, platform, and pamphlet hucksters, people don't write like that anymore, have wantonly lowered the standard of divine holiness and so adulterated the gospel in order to make it palatable to the carnal mind. I want to make it sound sweeter to you. And so I'm going to say whatever I want for you to feel good about your faith. John MacArthur says, False prophets talk much about the love of God, but nothing of His holiness. Much about people who are deprived, but nothing about those who are depraved. Much about God's universal fatherhood of every human being, but nothing about His unique fatherhood, only of those who are His children through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. They speak much about health and happiness, but nothing about holiness and sacrifice. Their message is a message of gaps, and the greatest gap of which leaves out the truth that saves. These are the great pretenders, brothers and sisters. They're the great hypocrites, the counterfeits, the malicious, and they're malicious by nature. And this is a huge concern of the New Testament. Starting in Acts 20, we see a warning of this. We see this in the epistles with Ephesians 5, Colossians 2, 1 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 1, 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3, 1 John 4. So be careful who you're listening to. Don't stone me yet. We are called to be on guard because their message is harmful. So then the next natural question is, how do we recognize them? How do you know? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because verses 16 through 20 talk about this. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. I think it's very important for us to understand what is Jesus meaning by fruit here? 
I think you can, you can make the conclusions here that he's not talking about how many converts uh, this particular person has won, converts, this particular person has won, how many churches they've planted. All, like, it's not necessarily talking about ministry um, fruits because that's, that's, that's the Holy Spirit's doing. The 3,000 that come that are numbered in the, in the early church in Acts, that's, that's the Holy Spirit's work. That's not the apostles' work. They're just as surprised that those people are showing up as anybody. So we want to make sure, what is fruits? How do you identify a false prophet from a true prophet? They have fruit that is growing in what they believe and the things that they do. So I want to emphasize growing. All right, we are growing. doesn't mean like tomorrow, you perceive Christ tonight, tomorrow all of a sudden you're Spider-Man. Like, that's not a thing. That's not going to happen for multiple reasons. But like, you grow. We walk together. Part of the reason why this path is so hard is because we are growing. I, I think what he's wanting is fruits of the Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. I like what Peter asks for. Peter tells us that the true and mature believer will be growing in faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, brotherly kindness, and love. So if I can like sum this up for you guys in two categories. When you're looking at somebody, they have true doctrine. Sorry, I lost They have sound doctrine and holy living. Sound doctrine and holy living. Now, sound doctrine can be very difficult for us to uh, pick out because maybe they're really good with their words. Maybe they quote a lot of things. But you got to beware. So here's just kind of a couple things that you can be aware of. Someone who has false prophets, usually they omit true things or they outright tell you something that's not in the Bible. Okay? They either uh, take things away or they just completely lie and say something else. Now, uh, the way that often happens is when churches don't preach the Bible expositionally. That means uh, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, even the hard stuff. You go verse by verse in context, you do your best to go through in context, studying God's Word according to its setting. That is hard. And it is okay sometimes for teachers and preachers to say, Listen, there's 80 ways to read this text. There's 80 people who say 80 different things. We're going to do the best we can, but we want to be faithful to God's word. The doctrines of these false teachers rarely highlight a few things. The dangers of sin, depravity, the need for repentance, forgiveness, and submission to the Lord. They don't really talk about the destiny of our judgment, condemnation, eternal destruction, our brokenness over our sin. They don't highlight those things. I love what John, uh, John MacArthur says about this. He says, they have easy answers for small problems. Testing, testing holy living, on the other hand, can be, a little bit more, can be a little bit easier. The problem is we can get into trouble where we can, where we can be critical rather than helpful. We'd be critical of the little things like, hey, that pastor drives a really nice car or wears really expensive clothes. It doesn't mean you don't close your eyes to all things. You still want to be on guard, but you want to be humbly watching for the welfare of the flock. 
Please do not hear me say that you have permission to go online and talk about all these pastors and preachers and slander them. You don't even know them. Let's stick to the teachers that are around us, the people that we know, and we're on guard. We're not being malicious here. We're guarding. We're protecting. We do this humbly. And this doesn't mean, again, that all our pastors and preachers are going to be perfect. All the leaders of the church are not going to be perfect. They're going to stumble. But we must be astute, wise, and understanding what is a stumble and a true confession, and what is someone who is not doing those things. So what are the safeguards? How do, you, how do you help? What do you do when you do see this? Like, what, like how do you know when th- something's wrong? Uh, short answer, this. We here at Pillar Church CC believe this is the word of God. This is truth above all else. If I could tell you the gospel in however many, you know, 470,000 words, I would use this. You must know it. We must get people in God's word. But we don't just hand it to people and say, hey, go get it, right? We teach them how to read it. We show them how to live it. We model for them how to feast off of it. If you do not know this book, you are ill-equipped to not only know this narrow path, but ill-prepared to guard against people who are falsely teaching it. We need these safeguards because the consequences are huge. We must be watchful, not critical, We must have loving concern and spiritual vigilance. This leads us to why it's important. Why is all this important? Being watchful, knowing the gospel, knowing God's word, why is it important? It's because of the importance of regenerate faith. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in the day, Lord, Lord, uh, Lord, Lord, we have prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice of lawlessness. Here's the scary thing. God is particular about who is entering in the kingdom of heaven. Even more scary is we can get so religious that we become immune to those requirements, to what God's asking us to do. I love David Platt is just really humbling on this passage. He says, Jesus is not talking in Matthew 7 or John 3 about irreligious pagans, atheists, or agnostics. He's talking about deeply devote, uh, devout religious people who are deluded into thinking that they are saved when they are not. He's talking about men and women who will be shocked on the day to find that though they were on the narrow road that leads to heaven, people who believe they were not born again. We must know what is true putting aside false doctrines, fables, and endless genealogies, as Paul puts in Timothy. Jesus is making a contrast between God's grace and mankind, humankind's work. He does not look for our work or merit, but our obedience and faith. This obedience requires regeneration. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. It requires faith in Christ. I mean, just remember Nicodemus. He was a religious man in the right religion and he still missed the point. Despite all of his learning and church attendance and religious rituals, he was dead in his sin. And look at this word in verse 23. Lawlessness. Lawlessness is not just the immoral things we do. Lawlessness is the state of being we're in when we do not know Christ. So being in heaven or uh, being saved 
It's about a relationship status. And we're not talking about Facebook here. But if I need to use it, I will. If your relationship status is anything but in a relationship with the loving Christ who died for me, so I would not have to pay the penalty of sin, you're doomed. There's no it's complicated. There's no it's single. There is one way, and that is Christ. Listen, I know Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims who are far, far more faithful and devout in their faiths than many of us are in our religion here. But here's the deal. God does not care about how much they believe. And guess what? Even if we were more, we match them in our zealousness for the church. We were here every day cleaning. We were here serving in all these capacities. We were doing all these things. God doesn't care. If you do not know his son and his son does not know you, it will not help you. And the consequence of not having Christ is not not being invited to a birthday party. The consequence is huge. You are purged from the presence of God for all eternity. You do not get to sit with Christ. You need Christ, J.D. Greer says, because you are dying. You don't need a moral improvement, a religious booster, or a fresh start, or to turn over a new leaf. You need a new life. The wrath of God is upon you. The curse of death is over you and at work with you. He continues, that's why when people say to me, Jesus is just a crutch for you, I want to laugh. I say, crutch? Jesus is not a crutch. If anything, he's a stretcher because I couldn't even limp into heaven without Jesus. And that is the truth for us. Nobody stumbles on the way, upon the gateway and says, I need that. On their own volition. Nobody can limp on their way through. We must be careful of the superficial religion that we so often subscribe to. This is what immunizes us to the gospel. What does that look like? 2011, Barna study shows that 50% of Americans say that they have prayed a prayer like one on the back of a gospel track in their lifetime. They've prayed a prayer, been to the class, been baptized or confirmed by a religious person. They think I'm good. My grandma was there. It was super meaningful. This Barna study shows that only half of those actually go to church and only half of those actually believe that the Bible is authoritative and two-thirds of them have lifestyles and worldviews that in no way differ from the outs- those outside of Christian faith. We have immunized our culture to the gospel by saying you prayed a prayer, you walked an aisle. But no one, the church is not standing affirming, is your life changed? Are you regenerate? Are your desires changing? Is your love for Christ increasing? What's so crazy is we have people like this that that are on mission trips. They're in church every Sunday. They go to small group, but they do not know Jesus. So what do we do? I'm running out of time, so we're going to hustle here. What do we do? Number one, know the gospel. I'm going to give you a little, little gospel acronym that kind of helps you just remember what is the gospel. It's, it, I mean, it's the Bible. It's, it's what's happening in the Bible, but let me just kind of give you some nice little points to help you understand. Number one, G, God's character. This is very important. This is what makes God and our religion different than anybody else. Trinitarian God 
He loves, He also judges. We don't have the luxury to, de- to, to depict or interpret or, or just point out like these aspects of God that I like. No, 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 no God. So Jesus says on the earth, he says, I do the work of the Father. So we need to know these intricacies. Like God made the world. He made it for a purpose. He's awesome. We don't have time to go all into that. We could spend an entire uh, seminary class just on God's character. Oh, offensive sin. We must know. We talked about this in this passage. We must know how bad our sin is. S, sufficiency of Christ. Christ alone can save you. Christ alone is the Savior. But you got to make a decision on that, which leads us to P, personal decision. Jesus gives you the command, the invitation, enter. You must make the decision now to enter. E, eternal urgency. Everyone's going somewhere. There are two paths, two destinations. Everyone's going somewhere for eternity. L, life transformation. We need to be regenerate believers. Doesn't always mean overnight we turn into some superhero. But we are growing. Remember John Piper's quote, I don't know that I'm alive because I have a birth certificate. I know that I'm alive because I'm breathing. Are you breathing today? Does God's word stir in you? Are your selfish ambitions being subverted by a desire to serve people? We're not perfect, but we do have faith that's lasting enduring and persevering don't put your hope in just some uh, religious accolade that we've done walking an aisle at church camp or or something put your faith in christ remember it's not actually your faith that saves you it's christ yes you are saved through faith let me be clear but it's not your faith that is impressive it's christ at the other end of your faith And we are not doing each other any favors by falsely affirming each other's salvation if we are not living as Christ has called us to live. So let's do it. And if you are in this room and you have not made Christ your Lord and Savior, I would love to talk with you more. I know there are others in this church that would love to talk with you more about this great Savior. But we don't want to delude the gospel. It is hard. It is difficult, but I want you to know you have a family of believers right here. This is the church. We want to walk with you. We want to go through life's challenges with you. We will help you. We are doing it together. And that just makes our affections for each other grow because we're doing it and we're heading in the right direction together. We're supporting you along the way. And then lastly, this is why we go to the nations. The way is not only hard, but our sin has made it impossible for us to even limp down the narrow path, like we said. People need a stretcher, and that is Christ. They need help going through that door. But how are they going to go through the gate if they've never heard about it? This is the great injustice in the world. Jesus says there are two paths. You're already walking down one, and if nobody invites you, to the other path. They never tell you about Christ. They never actually tell you who He is. You are doomed. And to think there are billions of people in the world who have little to no access to this gospel and this news. They never get invited. This is why we go. This is why you've prayed. 
This is why you're sending us, so that we can be a part of this work, that they can have the invitation. But I want you to be clear. I want to be clear. We do not take them just a prayer to prayer, pray or religious steps to be saved. We teach them all the things of Christ as commanded. We model for them faithfulness in the good times and the bad. We reveal to them the purpose and function of the church. And we teach them to study and treasure the scriptures in their own languages so that they might endure in their faith. The consequences of not knowing Christ are too great. Both paths lead to a destination. And I want you to ask yourselves today genuinely, where are you headed? Where are you headed? And as the church, Pillar Church DC, let us rally together as the body of Christ, being watchful and always growing in our affections for our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are great, that you are mighty, and there's 